The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. Today, we welcome our friend Rob Hutton. Rob is co-founder and director of Trimetis, a four-person cognitive systems engineering consultancy in Bristol, England. Rob and I started our careers together as young research assistants at Klein Associates in the early 1990s. His thinking contributed to early cognitive task analysis methods, and he helped articulate models of macrocognition. Rob is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors, He's also a part-time lecturer in Nottingham Trent University's psychology department. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Great. So I wanted to start out and talk a little bit about Trimetis. So you co-founded this cognitive engineering research and consultancy firm in the UK. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what it was like to establish a small business in this sort of niche field in England. Yeah, okay. So Trimatis, thank you for pronouncing it correctly. Um, some people struggle with that. Um, Trimatis is, uh, was founded from uh, a group of us that were at BAE Systems, the Advanced Technology Centre um, based in Bristol. And uh, we were made redundant from that organisation. And so we were looking at options for uh, what to do next. Um, and because we had similar interests in terms of cognitive work and particularly in a defense context, um, we decided to think about putting together our own business. Um, and so we really had a, a, a ready-made customer uh, in the Ministry of Defense in the UK uh, through the Defense Science and Technology Labs, DSTL, um, who we knew would be uh, one of our sort of primary uh, customers in the area. So in terms of the business decision, it was relatively uh, straightforward. Uh, the challenge, as you alluded to, is that this is somewhat of a niche uh, area of, of expertise and interest. Um, but we had some good uh, advocates in DSTL who were interested in cognitive work in the defense context. And there had been enough uh, projects um, and requirements coming through defense around the challenges of planning and um, defense in, uh, intelligence analysis and related um, work challenges that it felt like um, we had a good starting point and then the challenge would be to uh, develop develop the business from from there so that's how it all got started um, yeah so I'll leave it at that for now Nice. So, so you started out um, with DSTL as your primary client. Has that continued or have you branched out to work with other organizations? So, yeah, defense, we've, we've primarily focused on defense as a customer in part because my uh, the two partners uh, had a lot of experience uh, conducting work in military C2 command and control contexts uh, headquarters. Um, and so we had a reputation in that area that was um, already uh, already quite good. Um, and that work has continued with DSTL. 
So we, we had a, uh, a good connection with DSTL through my colleagues uh, in work that we've been doing in command and control uh, and headquarters, uh, cognitive work in the headquarters context. Um, uh, the One of the advantages, I suppose, when we started the company was that DSTL had a large program related to anything that was uh, had person or people related aspects of performance in it. Uh, at the time, it was called the Defense Human Capability Science and Technology Center, which really was a, a funding uh, vehicle, a framework through which any defense uh, projects that came through that had a, a human psychology, social sciences aspect to it came through there. Uh, and that program has had a, a long history. It had been running for a few years before I moved back to the UK, probably started in around 2004 timeframe and continues to this day, uh, and it's gone through a, a number of different iterations. But that remains our sort of primary source of uh, psychologically and cognitive related work. So that's always been a good uh, back basis for us. Um, but we've also gone out to other uh, other potential customers, and we've done a little bit of work with uh, other areas for uh, in academia um, in terms of supporting educational um uh, educational opportunities, lectures and workshops and so forth. Um, a little bit in the healthcare area, um, some work for the United Nations um, International Labour Organization. Uh, and then we've also had other work that has been kind of in the defence security area that's not been directly through DSTL. So I guess predominantly our work has been in, in the defence and security area. Wow, but still quite varied. Um, so I, I wonder of, of all the things you're working on now, what, what project are you most excited about? So, yeah, so that's interesting because uh, in the last year, I just started a, uh, another job. So I'm kind of 50-50 between uh, part-time lecturer at Nottingham Trent University um, and with Trimetis uh, half my time there. So I feel like I, I have uh, two lines of, uh, of interest in terms of projects. Uh, on the NTU side, it's about translating my experience and, and knowledge into uh, courses that uh, connect with the students. So that's a that's a challenge, and that's really exciting at the moment. Um, on the some kind of trimetis side of things, uh, we're doing some work at the moment relating to going back to my my roots in uh, human factors uh, uh, engineering. Uh, around human machine interface design and looking at the challenges around uh, suboptimal cognitive performance uh, as a result of uh, human the human machine interface and what we can uh, how we can help designers support the human machine interface design uh, so it more effectively supports the human cognitive capabilities um, so that's one uh, exciting project that's going on at, at the moment and the other is a thread of work that's been going on for a few years now relating to uh, development and learning related to cognitive uh, performance. And various terms have been used, but we've been talking about developing adaptive expertise uh, and also um, a term in we use in the defense at the moment, cognitive agility. So trying to define what that means and then what the implications of that are for training and education in a defense context. So they're, uh, they're all quite uh, exciting um, and both quite hot at the moment, which is, which is good. 
Very nice. So, so Rob, you're you're mentioning a few um, concepts uh, that are, you know, in the literature, and and also you're currently trying to develop them. Uh, but these are not straightforward concepts, right? That the NDM community is sort of full of of theories and perspectives that um, uh, can be a challenge to understand and appreciate and see their application. I'm kind of wondering, as you try to make this bridge between your professional work and your academic teaching, um, are you finding that bridge uh, is easy to get over or are you finding it a challenge to work with these students um, to get them to appreciate the perspective and the theories and the, and the problems that NDM challenges and then tries to face? Yeah, that's a real challenge. Um, I mean, some of the, you know, when you're developing, when you're involved in uh, an area that's that's still developing, and so in NDM we're we're still identifying um, interesting um, holes and gaps in current theory and, and models and methodological approaches. So I feel like uh, we're sort of on on the cutting edge, particularly in terms of translation from uh, academic. Uh, practice to um, applied solutions and so we struggle with these concepts even at a sort of post postgraduate level you know so po- you know post PhD level we, we struggle with trying to define concepts that either we uh, we come up with or that others present to us as, as applied challenges so for example the cognitive agility terminology is aris- arisen in a defense context because it resonates with with military people, maybe similarly to how situation awareness came about from the pilot community and then was was jumped on kind of in the mid eighties. Um, so that's a challenge, um, even with uh, even with people that are quite sophisticated in their understanding of psychology and real world problems. So translating that into an undergraduate context is um, is a real challenge, uh, and I'm kind of early. At some level, I'm I'm early in my my development there, having gone into uh, teaching uh, full time, you know, not full time, but permanent permanently as a relatively late. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around that, so I don't I'm not I don't have my own uh, module or, or course at the moment, so I haven't had to uh, struggle with that directly um, at the NTU. But when I do talk to folk, when I talk about some of the work that I've done in the past in in the form of a case study, it's a real struggle to translate that terminology to um, undergraduates who uh, tend to come. They may actually come with some level of learning and understanding, because in the UK, at least, we have students who start studying psychology when they're um, 17, 16, 17 years old. So they come with a couple of years of psychology already, but um, there is a tendency for those students to be, uh, their education tends to be more along the areas of individual differences, uh, social psychology, particularly clinical, and there's a lot of interest in sort of health um, and uh, clinical, you know, psychopathology and things like that. So when we start talking about cognitive work, that's a real uh, shift for them in terms of what psychology is, which I think is brilliant because psychology is anything that's people related and it's not all about um, people that are struggling or with health problems or clinical, you know, uh, clinical diagnoses. It's also about how people 
work successfully or perform successfully in work contexts and life contexts. But uh, it is a bit of a, a, a mental shift for those students. So that is a, a major challenge that I'm still uh, uh, still have to face to a certain extent. Have you been surprised in the way that some students have picked it up or or some students have really been challenged to make that shift? Has anything really surprised you with, with your students? be honest uh, at the moment i haven't i don't think i've been there long enough to to feel that um so yeah really the 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 interactions that i've had particularly around the ndm work and the cognitive systems engineering work has tended to be a, an in and out kind of thing so i'll i'll come and do a, a short lecture or maybe a half day um workshop um and then I don't get the opportunity to really to, to follow up with them very much. So I don't actually know uh, whether some of those concepts have really hit the mark um, and whether they've really resonated with people. Um, I think actually the more interesting uh, interactions from the perspective of feedback for me have been when I've had the opportunity to work with students who have contacted me either out of the blue or via um, my, my network like you guys and, and and folk that I know over here in the UK working in the NDM area who maybe suggest uh, a student who's doing a PhD or a master's project contact me about a particular topic. And then it's a little bit easier to have a, a, a better level of engagement and a multiple, you know, back and forth. So I might send something to read and then we might have an opportunity for a bit of an email exchange or a discussion. Um, and I found, I found those uh, very interesting and exciting because when somebody comes to me with a question like that, it's usually because they're quite highly motivated uh, and keen to to understand it. So, so actually, my my more um, productive interactions have probably been with those uh, students who aren't even my my students really at, at the moment. But I'm hoping that at NTU, uh, as I get more uh, up to speed with what the courses are that are offered and where I might be able to support them, and ultimately develop my own um, module within a, 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 a master's course or a, a, for example that um, those exchanges with students will be a little bit more in-depth and uh, potentially more productive and I'll get more feedback from them. Nice so right now you're you're kind of a guest lecturer that swoops in with this exciting new topic and but you, you don't get to stick around and kind of see how that plays out is that is that is that the case? Um, I think that's more referring to the time before I started at NTU where um, I might get the opportunity, having been invited by um, folk that I've worked with in the past, maybe who are in academia, to come and give a lecture to a, a class that they're, they're teaching. Um, and so that's been my, my experience prior to coming to NTU. Um, when I was brought into NTU, I've been, I've actually, I'm actually a student again. So I'm learning to be a better teacher, which is really good um, uh, and exciting. But um, it's meant that most of my teaching uh, responsibilities so far have been more in the context of uh, seminars or tutorials where the content hasn't been mine. And so the conceptual side of things uh, hasn't really come up. So at the moment, um, the closest that I've come to talking about some of my work experiences in a, a course that we have, a module that we have at, at NTU, which is a final year module called Professional Practice in Psychology. And there we talk, uh, the topics are 
provided by external organizations, which is great because it gives them a sense for how psychology uh, can help in a real world uh, problem context. But they're rarely about cognitive work. So most of my um, sort of tutorial and seminar work there is about more like um, professional skills like project project management and uh, risk project risks and dependencies and all that all those kinds of transferable skills that uh, aren't necessarily NDM specific. I see. I see. Nice. So I want to now kind of switch gears and uh, reflect back on earlier points in your career. So I know you have done a lot of field research in your life, and we all know that field research is not for the timid. Um, and I'm wondering, what is one of the crazy situations you found yourself in in the name of science? <laughs> uh, good question. So I think probably it was one of my last projects um, when I was at uh, Klein Associates. In fact, I think it was Applied Research Associates by then. Um, and so it was a project where we were looking at uh, interpreting crowd behaviours. So it's in the mid-noughties, around 2004, 2005. Um, we had a lot of armed forces uh, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were dealing with uh, crowds of people who behaved unexpectedly and differently to them. And so there was a project looking at sort of the cultural aspects of crowd behaviours. And we somehow managed to arrange a data collection trip to the Lebanon. Uh, and I found myself on a plane to Beirut with a colleague, uh, Winston, Winston Seek, and another guy who was on the project, who was sort of our chaperone, he was a former U.S. Marine intelligence officer who had who was born who had been born in Beirut and moved over to the U.S. as a teenager. And so we were doing interviews with people that had participated in large crowds uh, crowd activities around the assassination of the uh, Lebanese president, uh, uh, Hariri, I think it was, in the, at the time. So they'd had all of this experience of um, being involved in these, these, um, these, these crowds, these gatherings. And we also got the opportunity to talk to the, some of the people on the security forces, kind of on the other side of the barrier, so to speak, about, about some – we were using critical decision method – so we were trying to look at examples where they had had to um, make judgments and assessments about crowd behavior and what was happening and therefore what to do with their their resources. Um, and so that was amazing, uh, first of all, because when I was growing up, Lebanon was a place that you didn't go to. And we had a window of opportunity where things were relatively peaceful. And so we were able to travel there. Um, but the crazy part was that one of the first things we talked about was what would happen if things went pear-shaped and we had to escape and our escape route was via boat to Nicosia. And we were talking about all of these, um, these, these crazy things that you shouldn't really have to talk about when you're planning a data collection. But um, that was a great, uh, a great trip with uh, the people that I was traveling with, the people that we interviewed the families that we talked to, these, these people that were participating in these um, these crowds and, and how they how the 
how the activities were arranged and coordinated very informally um, at, you know, before and during the, the crowd activities, and then hearing on the other side of it how the security forces were interpreting what was going on and what their mental models of of these crowds was, and uh, which was influencing how they how they reacted and and things like that. So that was that was kind of crazy. <laughs> wow, that sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah. Did you have to interview people using an interpreter, or did most folks speak English? No, you yeah, said so that. Yeah, so that was the other um, interesting thing about this was that uh, I think we conducted. We de- we certainly uh, conducted the interviews through a translator. I'm trying to remember now. So some of the interviews were in French, which is um, uh, one of the uh, primary languages. I can't remember if we were all if we also had some in. Um, uh, I guess it would be um, uh, Arabic, uh, or or yeah, I can't, I can't remember exactly. But yeah, doing those interviews. I mean, you know. Critical decision method interviews are quite um, nuanced in the way that you ask questions and try and uh, get at people's uh, assessments of situations or judgments and how they understood a situation. And it's quite nuanced in terms of the language, especially when you're interpreting what they're saying and then trying to come up with a follow up question. So the fact that that was coming through a processed uh, means through this translator made things a little bit trickier, uh, but certainly... Uh, a kind of a notch on the belt in terms of uh, conducting CDM interviews. Yeah, yeah, I did this once also. I conducted interviews uh, using an interpreter. And I remember sometimes the uh, interviewee would give what sounded like a very long response and then the interpreter would turn to me and say, no. And I would would just have no idea what to do with that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, there's more to it than that. They said something else that was really important and you've just summarized it in one word. Um, But it does bring, it it does uh, bring to kind of quite stark relief the challenges of doing uh, these kinds of knowledge elicitation interviews and how much you rely on uh, the words that people used. I always remember uh, when I first came to Klein Associates and we were talking about in- interviewing skill and Beth Crandall would was would always talk about um, keep maintaining the, the interviewee's voice when you wrote up the notes. And part of that was um, when you writing when you write up detailed notes, not necessarily verbatim transcripts, but trying to maintain even some of the specific words that people were using. And so we sort of lost that as a source of of data in some of those interviews, which was a little bit frustrating uh, in places, but still fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think this is one of the things you learn over the years as you do cognitive field research, is that there are always these unexpected or sometimes expected barriers. And so so part of the the skill you learn over time is is figuring out how to how to get some interesting insights in spite of you know, the fact that you don't share a language or you only have a short amount of time with these people or, or whatever. Um, so when we write about CTA, we, we say, oh, you should have two hours and you should have two people and it should be in a quiet room. And that would be awesome. But it's not always like that. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think that's really important. Um, whenever I talk to people about um, conducting CTA and uh, a lot of people have have you know, for example, read the um, ACTA, Applied Cognitive Task Analysis Papers. Um, 
and they try and apply it and then we talk about it and they're kind of apologetic that they had to change uh, the way that they did it and i said no that, that that's that's exactly you know we have to adapt it all the time there is no right there is no perfect way of doing it and it will depend on who the subject matter experts are what the domain of expertise is um, but the important aspect for me is that underlying the uh, the questions and the sort of the general structure of the interview is an understanding of kind of the principles of why you're asking a question in a particular way so that if you do have to adapt it you adapt it in a in a principled way and so um, that's why I think uh, you know when we when we publish around cognitive task analysis methods we have to have the introduction around uh, models of cognition and and also um, aspects of uh, knowledge elicitation that aren't specifically about the question that you ask, but why you're asking it. So I think that's so key. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, so now I'm gonna ask a different question. Again, kind of reflecting on your career. Um, can you think, is there one project that start, stands out for you that was particularly rewarding that, that you feel like really had a big impact on you or maybe impact on the world? So yeah, it's uh, it's always when when we do a project. A lot of the pro projects are quite applied, and so they have a very specific target audience or application in mind. And so the reward comes from good feedback from uh, from the immediate sort of customer and maybe the, some of the people that were involved in the interviews. Um, but then you don't really hear about what happened to it for maybe years later. So that's quite um, quite hard to, to gauge in terms of uh, reward or, or benefit. Uh, I think probably, and, and there's a lot of those, and it's always a privilege to be invited into people's work uh, domains to talk to people that have a lot of experience and, and expertise to try and understand what it is they do and how they do it well. So that's rewarding in and of itself for, on, on all of the projects I think that I've been involved with. Um, in terms of long-term impact, I think probably the methodological projects where we've been involved in developing uh, a, a CTA method or adapting a CTA method uh, has a longer-term impact because other people then take those methods and use them. They try them out, they test them, they evaluate them, they adapt them. And we see papers coming up that use those methods, which is always rewarding. And so I think probably um, mentioned previously the applied cognitive task analysis work, which was the, probably the first project that I was brought in, uh, involved with when I when I left uh, university, when I left um, Wright State, to come to work to Klein Associates, and that was with you, uh, Laura, and and a few others uh, there, and. I mean, that project ended, was probably about two or three years of, of effort. And then there were publica publications around that kind of in the late 90s. Um, and only last year, I was asked to come and uh, work with a group at uh, Oxford University in the um, medical uh, surgical department. But they were using applied cognitive task analysis to develop um, technologies to go into hospitals to support the referral process and they were struggling with usability and kind of technology related issues but they were looking at uh, they were using actor to try to unpack some of the aspects of how doctors made referrals from one unit to another um, and they had data 
and we spent some time talking about the challenges they had applying actor for example um you know we talk about a simulation interview where you provide the subject matter experts with a almost like a case study but maybe in a little bit more detail with a you know phases and a little bit more trying to capture the dynamics of the work environment as a sort of stimulus for the knowledge elicitation and they'd struggled with that uh, with these doctors so we talked about alternative ways of doing that and how you might adapt it um, with the intent being that you provide some specific context and specific aspects of the scenario that would um, exercise different aspects of the doctor's judgments and uh, an assessment and so you know that project was started probably even before I started in at Klein, 93, 94, and it's still resonating uh, with practitioners even now. So, I mean, that's that's probably the, the, the biggest impact in terms of a project. Yeah, that, that completely resonates with me. That paper that you and I published in 98 on applied cognitive task analysis is probably the most cited thing I've ever written and the thing I get contacted about most most frequently. So that, yeah, we, we were just starting out, but that's turned out to be really enduring work. Yeah, and I think the key was um, taking methods that had were still evolving, um, but being used by a particular uh, very small number of, of people and trying to broaden the applicability of the method to a, to a broader audience hence the Applied Cognitive as- uh, cognitive Task Analysis uh, name. Um, and that's absolutely um, how it's ended up. So, yeah, that, that was a fantastic project. Yeah. So, Rob, you've mentioned methods and models and human factors. Um, I'm just curious, what are you finding attracts customers to your work today? What, what do you think is the most uh, valuable uh, proposition that you offer to your customers? So I think uh, that's evolved over time. Um, and it's partly a reflection on the customers that we have in the UK now. Um, it's quite a different um, environment from the US, particularly in terms of some of the limitations in terms of budgets and um, access to uh, subject matter experts because there are just fewer around, particularly in a defence context. I don't know how much smaller the UK military is to the US, but significantly. So, um, and so, and, and the other element I think is having worked at uh, BAE, which is a systems engineering uh, company, and trying to embed some of the ideas of naturalistic decision making and what what in the UK we would refer to as cognitive ergonomics or cognitive systems engineering. Um, that's uh, that's led me down some um, uh, interesting areas in engineering, in organizational science, um, systems engineering particularly, uh, and the systems engineering processes that BAE um, was was using. And so ideas around systems thinking. And so I think the attraction for, in terms of tri- the work that I do with Trimetis, is that we have a sound understanding and background with respect to the, the cognitive science and not just the, the academic literature, but also um, the in terms of ap- applications and how we apply it. That's one. That's one thread. The other thread is kind of the systems perspective. So, 
incorporating systems thinking types of approaches that are part of the cognitive systems engineering endeavor um, is another element. And then we get, uh, we do a lot of work in military headquarters where actually there's, you, you need a little bit of subject matter um, understanding and also uh, how we how we apply um, how we evaluate performance in a in a large scale exercise, for example, which is uh, not necessarily is related to it's field it's field research effectively, and because it's a C two context, uh, a lot of it is around planning and, and sense making and and uh, problem detection. So it's it's certainly NDM topics. So I think that package. Um, is something that that we are that we are we are known for and sort of respected for, I suppose, by in, in the community, and that's why people come to us because we bring those things together. Nice. So um, I am uh, reflecting on the fact that you have conducted NDM research both in the U.S. and in the U.K. And I'm wondering, um, do you experience cultural differences um, with regards to doing this kind of research in different? Uh, different settings yeah that so yeah that's a little bit tricky because i don't know um whether they're cultural differences in the sense of well we struggled this with this when we were talking about cultural cognition back in the noughties you know talking about the crowd uh, behaviors and cultural aspects of crowd behaviors and the, and whether national culture overrides organizational cultures um so and i and i think uh cultures are a tricky one i think some of the key differences are more sort of situational and so rather than individual or, or social necessarily so for example um the role of uh of psychology in society um is different i think in the uk uh in the us most college educated people will have had an undergraduate course in psych, you know, psych 101, you know, the, the basic ge uh, general studies kind of course. And so they'll be familiar with some of the terminology and some of the approaches that we take as psychologists. Um, in the UK, there may be people whose only experience of psychology is um, from what they've seen on, 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 on chat shows. And, you know, um, Jeremy Kyle, who's our kind of Phil Donahue equivalent, um, uh, or, uh, oh, um, yeah, so so that's a sort of, that's a big difference. So when we talk to people about psychology, there's a possibility that there is very little basic, uh, it's kind of folk psychology that we, that they have an understanding of. So that's a challenge in some respects. Um, but I think situationally, the other key ones are um, budgets for projects. And so just in conducting the work, uh, we have, access the, the 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 budgets that we have that give us the time to access subject matter experts um, is limited so we have less access to subject matter experts so knowledge elicitation um, becomes very a little bit kind of lighter uh, we don't have the access to the to the same number of of people with expertise um, i think uh, we also tend to work my experience in the UK, you know, and this is just based on my own kind of limit. I've only had two jobs in the UK, uh, BAE Systems and, and my job, or three jobs now, I guess, Trimetis and 
and NTU, um, I tend to find myself working a lot more on my own than I did when I was uh, in the US, uh, particularly with Klein Associates. That that might have been a reflection of how we worked at Klein Associates, but um, we don't have large project teams. Uh, the project teams seem to be smaller and more dispersed. So doing some of the an analysis around a whiteboard tends to be a little bit trickier uh, in some cases. Um, yeah, I think those are... So those are some of the uh, the bigger ones. And in the defence context, the fact that we were, I moved back to the UK in 2008 and we were just, um, we were in Afghanistan already and we didn't leave Afghanistan until, well, we're, we're still there, but in big numbers until about three or four years, until uh, until I left BAE really, 2014-15. So um, that obviously puts a, that makes it difficult in a defence context to access those subject matter experts. I don't know if that answered your question. It wasn't really about culture, more situational factors. Yeah, no, that's the things I was curious about. Part of what inspired this question for me was a long time ago, I gave a talk in Sweden and part of my um, kind of standard talk at that time was to um, start out and, and kind of um, explain the value of qualitative methods because in the U.S., um, there's this strong uh, preference for quantitative approaches and, and sometimes even um, uh, kind of mixed methods where you're, you're, you're trying to inform the quantitative stuff with more qualitative is viewed as suspect. And often things that are completely qualitative are, are hugely suspect. And so as I was uh, doing this talk in Sweden, part of the feedback was, why are you telling this? Of course. So, so they just, there wasn't that same bias toward uh, quantitative um, approaches. Uh, there was just a lot more openness to these kind of field research, uh, interviewing, observation uh, strategies. Um, so anyway, that's what kind of inspired the question. I, ju I just didn't know if you had encountered any, any uh, differences along those lines. Yeah, I think to a certain extent. Um, my experience in the, in the U.S., and the, this is going to be quite maybe uh, – overgeneralizing um, but there, there are more distinct um, disciplinary boundaries whether those are within psychology or between uh, bet between disciplines and I you know um, in psychology we always talked about kind of uh, physics envy and hard versus soft science yeah. and then within psychology the kind of quantitative qualitative stuff um, I think uh, partly as a result of the uh, limited resources in the UK, the, you know, the scale of that we do research in the UK, people are, and this may be true in other uh, European countries as well, possibly, is um, kind of this idea of being uh, resourceful, having to be resourceful and getting the data that you can get and maybe not being able to you know, do uh, large uh, studies where you've got control and, and you're collecting uh, quantitative data and so you have to rely more on um, ad hoc kind of qualitative data collection methods and things like that and so when you talk to people it's like well yeah that's just how we do it um, and actually that's sort of uh, yeah so, so I, I think I've I think I've come across that to a certain extent um, but I think qualitative and this just might be the passing of time I think that qualitative research is becoming more and more acceptable I think it's becoming more um, it's having more uh, rigor applied to it in the sense of 
um, recognizing the challenges of collecting qualitative data, but but still, it's it has to be it has to have some level of, if not systematicity, then level of rigor of analysis, um, so that uh, yeah, so that we're trying to make sense of of quite varied data sets in some cases. Um, but I think that that's being grasped by in, certainly in academia um, and gaining more traction because um, people perceive it as being more rigorous. Um, and I th- certainly think when we were doing the CTA work um, and with uh, uh, with the various knowledge elicitation methods, we never just talked about knowledge elicitation, which is just data collection. We always talked about knowledge representation and the analysis and the level, you know, a level of rigor that we tried to apply so that we didn't fall foul of um, some of the claims against the validity of those data uh, and then the subsequent um, ability, confidence in making, um, drawing conclusions and, and therefore making recommendations for you know, interventions. Yeah, and your point about the passage of time is a good one. Even now, I find myself less often justifying why we do this work and, and more just talking about the work. Um, so I think, I think you're right. I think the, the, um, mood has shifted even here in the U S and, and I think we're better at talking about it too. We've had a a lot more, um, experience, uh, thinking about how to do this in a a rigorous way. Yeah. Well, we've been banging on about it for a long time. So that, that must've had, that may have had a little bit of an impact in this sort of the circles that we are, uh, involved with. So (laughs) point, good point. Yeah. Okay, so who are three people who have influenced your approach? Ah, oh. okay. So that they are two. So two of them are academics, and one uh, we all know and love. Um, so the first one was probably when I was an undergraduate. There was. Uh, my actually my first year uh, tutor uh, tutor was a guy called Dave Oborn David Oborn and uh, I think he's responsible for a lot because in terms of me being interested in psychology and some of the thoughts that I've had about psychology um, we had a, an essay in my first year as an undergraduate to uh, it was basically talking about um, how to make machines more human uh, and what the challenges were, which was quite interesting. So, um, and, and probably I'm sure we've moved on a little bit, but, but in some, sometimes it doesn't feel like we've moved on that, that much in terms of robots and AI and so forth. But I mean, this was a long, this was 30, 35, 30 odd years ago. Um, But the main reason that he was influential was because he also uh, was um, selling his books to students via a couple of courses that he put on. Uh, one was on ergonomics, which was a- applying psychology and human be- performance stuff to the design of work and tools and workplaces, which I found fascinating. And and then he had another course, which he called behavioral computing, which was specifically about the ergonomics of um, computers. And so this was before desktop computers. Um, I didn't have a computer as an undergraduate. I had to go for my stats analysis. I had to go to the one guy in the department who had a computer. 
Um, so Dave Oborn really got me interested in uh, the interaction between people and technology, uh, which has been fundamental to my my career interests. The second was uh, John Flack at Wright State University, and he, uh, although I wasn't very good at cognition and perception as an undergraduate, he made me uh, grapple with that. But John was particularly um, good because he was interested in uh, interactions between people and tools and people and their uh, environment. And so the kind of the ecological psychology perspective that I still have um, was born of uh, a lot of time spent with with John, um, which included things like going to observe surgeries and uh, work that I did with um, Cindy Dominguez on the laparoscopic uh, surgery. So video keyhole surgery in the early, early 90s. Um, was really fascinating. So it started to give me a sense of the applied work. Um, and so John has been very influential. Uh, and then the other person is Gary, uh, Gary Klein. And I had a class with Gary. I didn't really know very much about him uh, until he came to deliver a class on cognitive task analysis um, at Wright State one summer. And I'd just finished my master's degree. And suddenly, um, Gary started talking about all of these applications of um, of psychology and particularly around expertise and skilled performance and how understanding that could help us improve uh, the design of technologies, of training interventions, ways of working, uh, things like that. And the whole idea of knowledge elicitation and knowledge engineering was introduced then. And obviously, since then, I've had a uh, a very uh, st- strong relationship uh, with Gary um, as a as a mentor and, and a friend. So yeah, those are the three: Dave O'Born from Swansea, John Flack at Wright State, and Gary. So you've you've nice. tossed out sort of the alphabet soup of of NDM vocabulary. So expertise and knowledge engineering and cognitive systems engineering. Uh, I'm wondering, and this next question is a bit of a hypothetical, but trying to get sort of at what you think is the essence of NDM. So you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM, and on the pain of death, you're giving one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask? (laughs) How many clauses (laughs) can I have in the question? (laughs) Uh, I think fundamentally it's around what, you know, what are your primary sources of evidence to support your analysis of cognitive work? So that's about, um, where are you going to find your, your evidence? You know, what, where are you collecting data? What are the sources of that? Um, and your analysis of cognitive work is is fundamental. So what analytical methods uh, or approaches are you using? And this sort of harks back to the issue of, you know, quali- you know a lot of it being qualitative um, uh, analytical methods. Uh, and then the focus on the cognitive work is, is cognition, it, it, you know, purposeful cognition, cognition in a work context. So in a way, there's embedded aspects of the question. So what, what, what are you primary sources of evidence to support your analysis of cognitive work. I think that would get at it. We could spend a good couple of hours 
over a, a beer talking about that. So that is a fundamentally methodological response that you're looking for. Yes, <laughs> except that the cognitive work would be in a context. Interesting. What? What? Why? What? What would you? What would your? What other? What? What were you expecting? Or what have you? What else have you? What other things would you include? You can't ask questions on a podcast, Rob. You have to answer questions. <laughs> uh, so, 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 so I won't tell you what, what we are expecting, uh, but I will tell you um, you're the second person we've asked this question to, and the first person gave a fundamentally model-based response. So it's interesting that you gave uh, sort of your, the at, at the heart of your question is sort of the methodology, uh, whereas our other answer was fundamentally about sort of uh, models and 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 thinking about how models are at the heart of NDM. So I think that's an interesting contrast. Although, let's remember about half an hour ago, we talked about how important it was when you're asking the questions to know why you're asking the question and where the question comes from. And that comes from the understanding of of those models and concepts. So there's certainly a sort of an understanding aspect to it, um, although not necessarily... Um, work that contributes to those models necessarily yeah okay interesting yeah no i was thinking the same thing rob that the models and the the methods are so linked it's really hard to pull yeah. them apart yeah you can't apply the methods very well if you don't understand the models you can apply them but you don't apply them very well <laughs> yeah 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 all right, so now um, we're going to move into our fun question. <laughs> Are you ready? The word association one, is it? <laughs> uh, no, excellent. we're not doing the word association this time. Um, uh, so I, we're, I would like you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie, and we will both try to guess the lie. Okay, so I, so I have prepared. I have had to prepare this. So thank you for, uh, for warning me about that. So here are my here are my I'll, I'll just give you my my three statements. Then you have to figure them out. Um, I once met the coach of the national England rugby team in a hotel at London Heathrow Airport to talk about developing decision making in rugby players, in international rugby players, world class rugby players. Um, that's the first one. Uh, when I was a child, I was the lead male in an elementary school Christmas production, which was based on the music of the Beatles. Uh, that's my second one. Uh, and my third one was I once found myself in a situation where I had a badly injured colleague who needed medical attention. And we were at least four days away from uh, any medical uh, help. Mm. Mm, this is tough. Laura, you're first. I do not think you had the lead role in a play about the Beatles as a child. What do you think, Brian? Well, the rugby one is interesting because that's just sort of a business development meeting, and I don't recall ever reading uh, Hutton et al., uh, International Rugby and the Implications of NDM. So, So that one... Hmm. I'm going to go with the rugby story. Is that? Do you think that's wishful thinking? 
I think you would have turned that into a project if the uh, call actually happened. So I'm, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt on your business development skills. Uh, yeah, I wish I wish that had gone somewhere, but it did happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, that happened on my way flying back from Beirut to Dayton. And uh, I'd been in touch with a guy who was doing uh, video analysis of uh, in the rugby context. This is about 2005. Um, and video analysis was just becoming big. And we were talking about, can you improve uh, decision making on the sports field by um, through through using video analysis, improving the analysis of video, for example, so that did happen. Um, Andy Robinson uh, was the national coach at the time, and we sat down for about an hour. So that was um, that was fascinating, and unfortunately, it never went anywhere. Um, uh, Laura, you know me well. <laughs> I cannot think of a worse hell than standing up in front of a bunch of people on a stage, let alone singing anything, even though the Beatles are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a stagehand at, at that production, um, but that's the closest to the stage that you'd ever get me. Um, and the other one was uh, actually my my very first field research um, as an undergraduate was uh, in Guyana, which is in South America. And I was uh, on a kind of a youth expedition with a bunch of people, and we were uh, we were doing this jungle trek. And a guy got his hand cut by a machete accidentally. And uh, we barely had any radio communications. Um, and we were in the middle of the jungle. So there was absolutely no way that we were going to be able to um, sort of, you know, use a helicopter evacuation or, or anything. And we were several days walk from our base camp. And then from the base camp to any kind of hospital was, um, uh, was, was days. So... Um, but on that expedition, uh, my it was a target of opportunity for my final year project, and I collected a load of data around um, stress and uh, personality. I did some personality inventories and some health um, sort of wellness types of questionnaires and some questions about um, stressors in a jungle context. So I should have known then that... Um, that I was going to end up doing field research in interesting places. So, was your colleague okay? Yes. Sorry, yeah, I should have told the end of that story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so the solution was um, he walked back. Fortunately, the first part of the trek was on a track that was reasonably uh, well marked. And so he went back with two, uh, two others. So three of them went back towards the camp. And then we had a doctor at the camp who came... And she did some kind of emergency stitching on his hand, and then they eventually got him back to um, a facility where they where they sewed where they sewed him up. But it was quite a nasty. I don't know how many stitches he, he had, but it was a nasty cut across um, the palm of his hand and his thumb. Mm. But he was fine. Yes, I still keep in touch with him. <laughs> well, I know how much you guys love to think about methods and and what are good questions to ask. I'm not sure we're going to keep this question in the podcast because so far Laura is 2-0 and, and I am 0-2, although it does get us some really good stories out of everybody. 
Yes. Well, um, Rob, this has been so fun. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I was yeah, I was looking forward to catching up with you. I wasn't so much looking forward to the questions, but it ended up not being uh, not being too painful. So I'll take it. No, it's really good fun. Thank you. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> so on that note, thank you all for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Mm-hmm.